Augmenters. I'm Julie. And I'm Jimmy. And we know that great leaders have great mentors. And today we are joined by Dr. Bentley Gibson, researcher, professor, and CEO of the Bias Adjuster, to share with us the why and the how of building inclusive mentoring practices. On this dynamite episode, you are going to learn how to connect better with others by thinking about how to unify with somebody else and how together you can bring people together. Notice the pun, two togethers. Not really a pun, but it's a theme, together. Secondly, you're going to learn how to grow to your potential by shifting where you consume and who you interact with. There's real power in getting outside of your in-group, not just for you, but also power in community. The theme for this episode is the Augmenter's Principle of Pitch. We've talked about pitch before as an episode theme, but today, Dr. Bentley reveals the wonderful opportunity for mentors to seek mentees. Here we go. Dr. Bentley Gibson, I am so excited to bring you onto Augmenters. You are a friend. You are a mentor. We've gotten a chance to work together. You are my you mentor. Are, <laughs> oh my God. You are incredible. You are doing so many amazing things. You're an associate professor in psychology at Georgia Highlands College. You are the founder of the Bias Adjuster, working with all different kinds of organizations from the government to universities around looking at implicit bias. You love mentoring. You love to talk about it. And I'm so so excited to have you on today. Welcome. Thank you so much. I mean, we've come full circle. You know, you have mentored me and given me some great advice about just starting a business and things I need to think about as I'm on that journey. And so when you sent me that email, I could not refuse to just take this time to come full circle and just give you anything I could in terms of how DEI is connected to mentors. Amazing. Amazing. I'm so excited to introduce you to Jimmy. And before we even get started, Dr. Bentley, what we always ask our guests is to basically a lot of our guests will say that mentors are people who saw something in them before they saw it in themselves. So we would love to hear who was a mentor to you and what did they see? When I think of mentor, I think of Dr. Andrew Barron and mm. I met him at a conference when I was in graduate school and I was sitting in the front and he was in the back, I believe. And I asked a question after one of the panels, I had a question about uh, the development of racial biases in, in children. And that was both of our areas of research. And when he heard my question, he came up to me after that conference and, you know, started asking me where I was, what program I was in, what I was interested in and how we could collaborate. And he actually ended up passing down all his knowledge on the implicit association test, which we just talked about, and helping me learn how to test young children in their implicit biases. And that's what I did for my dissertation work at Emory University. So if it wasn't for him, I don't know if I'd be talking to you right now. So what was the question? Oh, the question. So the comp the topic was in-group bias in children and that children, the they kept talking about children having an in-group bias. But I had just finished doing a study on Black American kids here in Atlanta and looking at their racial biases using the doll test. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the doll test. 
tell us more. Uh, Mammy and Kenneth Clark doll test came out in the 50s. It actually integrated American schools. So they used this doll test in Brown versus Board of Education from these two Black psychologists that played with dolls with kids as an experiment, asking them, you know, which one is good? Which one is bad? Which one's the nice one? Which one's the bad one? And the dolls are identical outside of race. And they found that as early as preschool, five years old, these children were reporting these racial stereotypes. Black children were saying, you know, I like the white doll, but I'm I'm black. They identified as black. They were associating positive characteristics with the white doll, negative characteristics with the black doll. So I literally had just recreated that study, which was done in the 50s. I did it for my master's work and found very similar results. There was not what is called an in-group bias in terms of a bias for your own race or your own group. And that Black American children, Latino children, we looked at Asian children, the South Pacific, we went and did the same study, did not show this in-group bias. So that was my question in terms of, wait a second, is this in-group bias really universal? Because the way they were talking about it was like it was some universal concept. And I shared my research that I had just done. And he came right up to me after. And we looked at in-group bias using the implicit tests in children here in Atlanta. So what I just heard was you didn't actually ask a question. You were more like, I think y'all are missing something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in the 1950s and 50 years later, let me educate y'all a little bit. But you did it. Very, In the form uh, of a question. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> really universal. <laughs> yeah. You didn't quite strip the person down out there. You were just like, could I throw something out and maybe yeah. you run with it if you... <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And he did. And he did. Right? And how, how did your relationship evolve? Was it sort of this moment in time? Has it evolved over oh. time? And, I, and you're making me want to reach out to him right now. Like, you know how life, like, you get older. Do it. Yeah. We, we can on. pause. I, 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 like, I'm, I'm, sending him a, I'm sending him an email today. We haven't spoken in a few months, but we make sure to check in a couple of times a year. But how it evolved is we kept in touch after that conference. I was at the stage where I was finishing my master's, about to take my qualifying exams and go into my PhD and figuring out what my next research project was going to be. So I had just done the doll study. We published that. Um, and that did really well in terms of showing that we still have a problem going on here today. But the implicit association test was really hot at that time. It came out in the 90s with adults, but Andy had created it for children. And so they had done some research on kids during that time, but mostly with white kids, white American kids. And in the UK, there was a gap in the research in terms of we could use some more diversity in our samples. And I'm like, mm. hey, choose me. I'm in Atlanta. I can totally uh, help in this area. I was interested in it. I had taken that test in undergrad and had already known a little bit about it and was like, this is like perfect. And so from there, he really took me along my dissertation route. And that was my research project. And I had literally so much support from him. Like I felt it just even took over the support I had at Emory, you know, in terms of like, he was really there teaching me how to program the test, how to write the results, you know, mm -hmm. every step of the way. And I wasn't necessarily getting that same support internally where I was. So I really don't know where I would be without him. That is incredible. That is incredible. And this feels like an area that has been such a passion of yours. It sounds like at least since undergrad that you started with, but maybe for your whole entire life is really helping others 
see this implicit bias that they have. Did that just come from life experience? Was there any other mentors kind of in your life that that brought this to you? How did this yeah. become your life's work? Dr. Belly, have you ever been have you ever experienced implicit bias in your life? Oh, at, at preschool. So that's when it that's when it started, but I'd say even before that my parents, you know, they grew up in the south, you know, segregated south. My dad's the first black man to graduate his high school. So I heard stories of what he went through and Osceola, Georgia, and my mom grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, and both of them went to segregated schools the majority of their lives until my dad integrated in high school. My mom didn't integrate until she went to Harvard Medical School, and she's one of the first 10 Black women to, to graduate Harvard Medical School ever, because they had really just started letting in large groups of Black people, Black women in the 70s, and she was a part of, talk about affirmative action, right, and it being really powerful. I wouldn't be here, again, if it weren't for those experiences that my parents had and were able to then pass down to me. So really important to first start with them as my first mentors and just teaching me what racism looked like and what it felt like. But I grew up in, in White Plains, New York, which was a very different place than them, but not so different at the same time. So I experienced bias in preschool in terms of going to the playground and certain kids wanting to play with each other and certain kids not wanting to play with each other. And the research validates this in terms of if you look on playgrounds, you can see kids starting to segregate by gender, by race very early. And I felt that in the preschool classroom, and so much so I said, you know, let me see if I can mitigate their biases by telling them I had my magical princess from Africa. <laughs> I have power. Wait, so you were you were a magical princess from Africa. That's what I, told them. Yes. I was a little black child in the classroom yes. and I noticed some some social distancing. And I said, you know, maybe I can mitigate these biases. If I just tell them that I have magical powers, it might work. Now it didn't work for everybody, but it did work for one person, and we're still really good friends to this day. <laughs> I mean, you do have magical powers. That's I, I love it. That I love is. it. 100% true. I want to hear something interesting. My children's book, My Magical Hair, was actually inspired by that little preschool girl who's the only Black girl in her class trying to mitigate these biases. So that's full circle. And so I said, when I went to graduate school, I've always been just observing race and bias and how people interact with each other based off of these identities. So I said, why not study this? And I have been just doing it and I'm so passionate about it, but also helping others be a little bit more passionate about it too. Real. Quickly, shout out to your book. Uh, my I'm sending your daughter a copy, Jimmy. So, Well, free copies are great, but where can people buy copies? Amazon, but also my website at thebiasadjuster.com. All right. Link in the show notes. Yes. So you at age like five realized that you needed like a brand story? Like I need a, a brand story. Wow. I need a brand story so that the kids would play with me the same way they were playing with one another. And you know what's really interesting is that the child who I came together most with in that classroom, she was a white girl, but she was larger than the other kids. Okay. So they yep. distanced themselves from her as well. Mm. And we came together like Ebony and Ivory. Okay. And it was just, it's really, a, it's, it's a sadness in terms of us experiencing those biases, but how we can come together across different identities from similar experiences. I saw that very early. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your current work and work that you're doing with organizations, what you bring to them to help them really take a look at what's going on within the organization. And just for full disclosure, we met because you came to my organization yeah. to uh, do some training to help us really see where biases existed within the organization and help us better understand how we can do the work towards changing that. So share, I'd love to just have you share a little bit more about the kind of work you're doing today. 
And you were one of my first clients when I started this oh, business. Really? So that was, yes, that. you were. And it did great. I did not know that. Yes, you were. You were one of my first clients and gave me some really grateful uh, feedback that I'm grateful for when we were together. So that I've used even throughout my, my tenure doing this work. But the baseline of it is having as many people in a company test their unconscious biases. So I'm literally going back to my research, my original passion for studying bias and bringing this implicit association test to the workplace. And then I train folks because after they take the test, they have questions, right? So they receive their results that they may have a bias one way or the other. And then we have a training around, well, what do these biases mean? So we get as many people in the organization to test their biases, but the, to then learn about what do these biases mean for their behaviors generally. So in terms of their nonverbal communication, how they're making people feel when they're interacting with them but also in terms of workplace practices. How does it play out in your hiring? How does it play out in your leadership abilities? How does it play out in your mentoring, right? And then that's where we can make progress and First, helping people realize they're human, they have biases, but then giving them those opportunities to have learning moments to have an idea of what these biases mean for their real world everyday experiences and how to mitigate them, right? So I also help them gain strategies that the actions they can take in their everyday lives, but also in their work pl practices to shift these biases, which are not so Switzerland. <laughs> are there a few tips you can share? Not tips necessarily, but are there a few little top line? Because I think that's always the like you, okay, these exist. What do I do? First thing is admit that you have them. Okay. That's the first step is stop pushing back, no. assess them. Right. And you can, you don't even need this test to assess them. You can do that again, analysis of yourself. Where are you from? Who have you been exposed to in your personal life, but also your media consumption and asking yourself, do they confirm or do they counteract these stereotypes? The number one way to kind of get out of these non-Switzerland places where we have these biases, research shows us to counteract them. So getting new information about groups that you have these stereotypes for that literally goes against the stereotype, but we're not always doing that. So one thing I see often with my clients is like, for like Black History Month or Hispanic Heritage Month. They're doing celebrations, right? But the celebrations that they're doing don't counteract biases. They actually confirm them. So for Black History Month, they're just learning about Jim Crow and oppression and slavery, right? That increases white bias unconsciously. But when you learn about Black inventors and Black contributors to your society and Black contributors to your field, now we're getting away from our biases and closer to Switzerland and neutral because we're counteracting it versus confirming it. So oftentimes people will think they're doing the right thing, but they're actually doing things that are increasing their biases versus neutralizing them. That's something that I feel like has really been trying to change recently where folks are trying to at least celebrate and acknowledge, hey, these are months that are occurring. These are reasons to celebrate. Let's try to talk about this. How, how have you found as a way for some people to unlock their own shame in knowing that they have these biases, but being uncomfortable with coming forward and being like, hey, we're going to go. I normally don't do much for 
you know, February, but now we're going to like dive into this month. Right. And, you know, how to be okay with, I am shifting my normal behaviors other than, hey, this is growth and you're getting better. Like, right. how do you see people get around that? And these cultural months and holidays are great for learning, right? So again, for counteracting your stereotypes, your biases, even what you know about groups historically, and really increasing your like cultural competency, but they can't just be for those months, right? You have to take that into the 365 days of the year, right? That we have. And oftentimes people don't do that. They may go to one training or one activity and say, look, I did the work, right? But they haven't counteracted their biases, even in the one thing that they did. They've actually confirmed them. Um, they may even do things like uh, say, we, you know, I went to this event or I went to a training, but then take no actions afterwards in terms of what did they learn. So that's really important in terms of not just coming to trainings, not going to these one-off events, even for like cultural holidays, but bringing that into your everyday lives and also shifting who you're interacting with. Because sometimes we get so in-group oriented or bias oriented and we're only interacting with folks that are like us or in alignment with our bias and not moving towards what can be uncomfortable, right? And interacting and building those genuine connections with people who are part of our outgroups or part of groups that we have negative biases for. And so it's really important to recognize that we have to do what works and that's not just this performative stuff, right? And bringing it into our everyday lives. Dr. Bentley, you could not have teed me up better. Oh, I love it. <laughs> to talk about mentoring yes. and having these relationships where you really get to connect deeply with somebody. You get to better understand them, where they're coming from, what their experience is, to have these real conversations and show up for each other. Tell us about how you see mentoring within the workplace. Let's start there. How that counteracts bias. So really important. What's happening in a lot of mentoring is it's not counteracting bias. It's actually confirming it. So people mm. are mentoring people oftentimes who are like them. There's a lot of research that shows if people just choose their own mentors or mentees, they're gravitating towards people who they see, who they may see as a, a younger version of themselves or an older version of themselves where they want to be, but they have identity characteristics in common, which confirms and does not counteract biases. So what we need to do is intentionally make sure that people are gravitating towards those that are not like them and passing down knowledge and receiving it from folks that are not just part of their in-groups, or there's going to be a big gap in mentoring and it's going to confirm bias versus counteracting it. And if you audit programs, you may find these same results at organizations in terms of only certain people are getting mentors and those who are getting mentors their mentees and mentors are very similar in terms of race, ethnicity, even personality types, right? And that does not move the needle. And then you're going to leave a lot of people in the back without mentors because these biases are there and there may be no one who is like. So when you are potentially matched up by a third party, which mm -hmm. at Augmenters we found that can be a beneficial way for maybe reducing the guilt of not wanting to go out on your own to find someone not a younger version of yourself to find somebody not in your standard quote unquote, like in group when matched up like that, what is then a good way to acknowledge that you're going to have implicit biases without potentially in the beginning of any relationship is a, always an important time, but you don't want to come in, you mm -hmm. know, quote unquote, overly woke and bringing a whole lot of your emotional baggage to somebody else. That's so right. what are some ways to, uh, acknowledge without, I don't know, uh, 
avalanching. First, mentors or those who decide to be a mentor can't just go into this without having a learning moment themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So I too, I strategically partner mentor mentees, but then I make sure there's some steps here, right? Especially if, but if you're that mentor who's never uh, had a young African-American mentee before, right? And you, you want to do the right thing, but you don't know that you don't even have these biases, right? So again, I create sessions for mentors to A, let's, let's test your biases first, and let's talk about how they could potentially play out in your relationship with this new mentee that you're going to have before they start interacting with one another. And then even structure activities and things that they're doing with their mentee that will really mitigate their biases and help them form these connections beyond them. So I think it's a little bit of hand-holding in it, right? You don't want to throw, not everybody's an inclusive mentor, right? They may want to be, but they may need a moment to first have this check-in and learning time for how my biases could play out in my mentor practices. And then they can take that into their relationships. But that doesn't happen oftentimes. Oftentimes, they, you don't even have to worry about that because you're mentoring someone who's like yourself, right? And if you are mentoring someone who's not like you, these relationships can often dissolve quickly if they don't have this moment beforehand to have that learning. I think that is just such an incredibly important point and one that we hear often. There is this idea that if you are human, you should know how to mentor. Like mm -hmm. you should just, you are an, a person who's good at a particular job, you got into a particular place in an organization and you should just somehow know how to be able to do this. But we're hearing more and more often how important it is, like you said, to take a beat, take a moment, really get some training in terms of how to show up for each other, especially if you are doing the most important work, which is really creating these organizations that are much more inclusive. You have to really take a step back and to better understand where you're coming from and get trained. Jimmy and I were just talking about this, like, and ask vulnerably for help, like to know that you don't necessarily know how to do this. And you may stumble, you may say the wrong thing, you may you may not spend the right amount of time. Yeah, right. you may accidentally offend somebody. You might, but being able to really, or you might hear something really uncomfortable from somebody, but you know, to just be able to kind of sit with that and being able to really show up for it, I think is just incredibly important. Something that we've been talking more and more about lately. It's that combination too, for the mentee who experiences the mentor not saying the right thing, right? Microaggressions, but also showing their biases in terms of things like how much time am I spending with my mentee? So when I've audited certain programs, I found that, for example, employees of color, get less time for their mentors than white employees. And so it's really important to also realize our biases play a role in this. If we have negative biases for groups, we spend less time with individuals who are members of those groups. And if we're not auditing that time and having mentors really structure, how much time am I spending with folks? What am I doing with them, right? Then they may not realize I'm not even truly giving to my mentee what, what I could be because my biases are stopping me from even spending the right time with them. Right, or reviewing what they read, <laughs> what they wrote, right? I'm not even reading what they wrote. I reviewed others' work, but I didn't review this mentee's work. I didn't have the time to do it, right? Or, you know, I don't know how to give them feedback because I'm afraid my biases may put, come out in, or they may take it as a bias, right? So it's really important for mentors to know how to give feedback that does not have bias in it, but also others will not perceive as being biased, right? So I think it's really, they don't have those learning moments. They will go into this and the relationship will dissolve very quickly because they're not spending the time, they're saying the wrong thing, and they're going into fight or flight when even having to meet with each other. <laughs> okay, so look, Dr. Bentley, I want to review. Tips yes. to assess your own biases. 
first, acknowledge. Second, I have is is shift, meaning like who you're interacting with, what you're consuming, get outside of your standard in-group. Mm-hmm. Educate yourself on why you might be experiencing these things, why this might be hard for you. Mm-hmm. And then I've been hearing the term audit. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we're going to actually kind of go through and, you know, how, what, what are our interactions doing? Are we really acting the way we think we are? And the answer mm-hmm. is obviously no, because nobody acts the way they think they are regardless. What are the next steps? And I, especially about now I'm ready to, like, I've gone through these four things, acknowledge, shift, educate, audit, mm-hmm. but there's still people involved, especially in mentoring relationships. Mm-hmm. So cur- currently everything that's been happening is either the external groups are passive to me. I'm shifted who I'm interacting with. They're mm-hmm. not shifting what they're doing with me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really more internal work. What 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 is the next step here? Talking to somebody or having interactions with somebody else? Like, can you, can you, can you keep me going down this path? Yeah. So in terms of this internal audit, so you have the mentor, let's start there in terms of them auditing. How much time have I invested in this person? Am I meeting with them? Who am I meeting with? Right. And so I've created an audit checklist for mentors in terms of who they're meeting with, how much time they're spending with that individual and what they're doing with them. Right. And once they take a step back and then analyze, am I doing different time with different groups and realize that they can then say, okay, my jump shot doesn't quite look as neutral and as inclusive as I thought it was looking. Right. And so that's that first step is that internal audit in behaviors and making that connection to our biases. Look, I haven't quite interacted with people who are part of this identity or shifted my biases who are for people of this identity. And I'm not spending that time with them. I'm not reading the work that they're sending to me, right? I am just really not um, making an impact on them as I could with folks who are like me, so it's more comfortable. And folks may not realize that until they do that internal audit, but then now they can shift behaviors because they see it. They see I'm not doing that work. Now, if they see they're not doing that work and wanna keep that way, they're not the mentors you want, all right? <laughs> They're not the ones that are also going to bring the mentor really great uh, joys in terms of the impact they can have on folks who are not just like them. And Dr. Bentley, do you recommend a mentor sharing their results of their implicit bias test or things that they've seen come up in themselves with their mentee? Has that gone well? Like, what do you, how do you recommend that conversation happens if they've seen that maybe there's things that have come up or maybe they feel nervous and uncomfortable. Is that vulnerability sharing worth that sharing? Mm-hmm. I've seen it work well in terms of saying, look, I'm human and I have biases. If I mess up, please let me know I want to do better. Okay. That can be a first step in terms of mentor and mentee knowing, look, this is not going to be perfect here, but I want to do better. And I'm open to receiving that feedback. And that does not always happen. You can get the mentor. And I've had this mentor who does not realize they have bias, who thinks they're they're neutral and that they're doing everything that they can to help you, but doesn't realize that the feedback that they're giving you is full of bias. But now the mentee is afraid to tell them and have that conversation versus setting that stage like, look, I'm open to hearing that. Please let me know. I see it as a gift rather than something that is bad because I'm open to that. I think that's really important for mentor mentees to have that conversation and it does not always happen. I would agree. I think that vulnerability creates those connections that you're able to share that you're both 
that you're both human and you're both working towards developing this really important relationship and how that impacts the organization. So speaking of organization, something that I know we've heard quite a bit too, of course, there's internal mentoring and really working within an organization to grow leaders, to share knowledge. But then how about externally? How can professionals work externally as mentors? And what are some of the challenges with that? Really important to, to distinguish between those two. And so the internal side is, look, as organizations are even trying to get diversity or even to retain their new talent, the research is there that mentoring can help with that in terms of people want to stay, they're happier, they're more engaged when they have a mentor and someone who can can help them in areas that they want to improve on and also they can connect with, especially in a leadership role, right? So this allows for employees to have that direct connection to leaders and to learn from leaders. And it also allows for like reverse mentoring for leaders to learn from their mentees. So that is best for the culture of the organization. The research is there. It also reduces turnover, improves um, paying for training. There's less paying for training when you have these types of relationships being built through mentoring. Mm -hmm. There's a business benefit for having it internally. You're going to retain people, including your diverse talent, but you're not going to retain your diverse talent if they're not getting mentors and having inclusive mentors. So a lot of companies are creating these diversity goals and they're like, we want to get to this level of diversity, but they're not doing what is going to get them there and retain their diverse talent. Actually, they're doing the, the opposite. And sometimes the diverse talent doesn't even know they have a mentoring program, right? So internally, there's a lot of benefits. But then so externally, there's benefits as well in terms of even creating diversity in the future pipeline. So a lot of my clients are doing things like reaching out to historically black colleges and mentoring the future talent, right? Or Hispanic serving institutions and making sure that they're providing internships that are going to have diverse representation because they've made those partnerships. And then you look five, 10 years down the line and the organization is more diverse. So there's those two areas of mentoring, what you're doing internally, but also who are you in mentoring externally to improve the pipeline in the future? We know there's some gaps there and companies can be doing work in that. And I think we sometimes encounter people who say, yeah, I'd love to mentor more. You know, my company doesn't have a mentoring program. Like, I'd love to mentor more, but I don't really know what to do or where to go. I think some of it is just a bit of that homework, right? Of like what organizations are invested in growing diverse talent within your field and just get in touch with them. We talk right? a lot about pitching. Just get in touch with them. Say, I'm really interested in mentoring. Like, I'd love to do more of this. How can I get involved? And I think people are always happy to do that. It feels like it has to maybe have the structure when we're talking about internal mentoring, maybe yes, but the external mentoring, I think you can just find ways to do that, whether that's with your alumni association, whether that's with your professional associations. So I think there's a lot of ways that people can can get that experience. Yeah. And one way it, it, it's, again, it goes into that in-group like me bias is that alumni association often represents only certain groups, right? So you may have to call in a third party who has different connections, the different alumni associations, and it's not as difficult as you think. So for one of my clients, they said, look, we want to mentor. We don't know where to start, but we would like to mentor some more diverse um, future talent. So I made a phone call to my my school, Spelman College, and we got them in touch with a class, one class of 25 students, and they each can be paired with a mentor. And they're doing simple things, reviewing their resumes. 
They're meeting with them twice a year, okay? That's all they're being asked to, but if they can, keeping in touch with them a little bit more, but giving structured activities to do with them in the twice a year that they meet with them goes a long way. And some of these students will be up for their intern program in the summer, right? So this is something that it, it may seem daunting, especially if your networks are small, right? Uh, and you're going to keep redoing and re reinventing the wheel and getting the same people. It, but if you just take that extra step, which may mean reaching out to a third party, which may mean doing a little research and figuring out who specifically at an HBCU you should be talking to. I can't tell you how many times people have had the wrong email address or reaching out to the wrong person, right? To make these connections and they just give up, right? And so really important to make it simple for folks, but sometimes you may have to bring in that third party who can do it a little bit quicker. And one thing I'm kind of hearing is that if you're set Setting internal goals as a company for DEIJ, mm -hmm. you should be having those similar goals kept in mind when you're doing external mentoring or how to support your staff going out and reaching out into the community. And it doesn't have to be necessarily just about who we might want to recruit in five or 10 years, but it should really follow a similar path if you want to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. And if you want your organization to do as good as it can actually do, right? Because the, yeah. there's a lot of research there, right? That yeah. shows... Creativity, increase with diversity. The time to do tasks, even when you have diverse groups, goes down, right? So you have more profits when you have diverse teams. So a lot of research that shows there's a business benefit here, but we are cutting our businesses and our impacts short if we don't really do this work. And mentoring has been found to be one of the most effective ways to not only get diverse talent, but to keep it. Can you say that again? It's one of the most effective ways. <laughs> To not only get diverse talent, but to keep it, but also to create those moments of connections where even senior leadership are learning new things and getting new opportunities. I'll go back to our original example with my mentor. You know, he didn't have that opportunity in Canada to test black children like I did here in Atlanta. And so we made that connection and published that paper and it ended up working out great for everybody, you know? So really important to keep that in mind in terms of the benefits to the mentor and making sure that they are not just mentoring people who are like them, but also giving back to folks that they may not even have a lot of friends of that, that group, right? And leaning into that with your mentee. And it can be a safe space to do so if you create that by saying things like, look, I'm human. I may mess up. Please let me know, right? By looking at how you're evaluating them. Are you giving biased feedback, which may be happening and reworking that if you realize you are. <laughs> And when there's external mentoring programs and people are embedded in their community and happier in their community, it's shown that they're also happier within their organization. And mm -hmm. you know, increased well-being in one area increases well-being in all areas. It's so true. And I'll give an example. I had Please. a mentor who was a woman mentoring another woman, and she was constantly giving her feedback about how she looked and her personality, right? And she didn't realize that until we walked through it. I sat in on one of their sessions and she wanted some honest feedback in terms of, you know, how do you think it went? She felt a little bit uncomfortable. You know, they had had a couple of hiccups in the road, her and her mentee. And so I just gave her the honest feedback in terms of, look, you're talking a lot about things like how she looks, you know, being professional looking and women, the research is there. Women get more of these stereotypes about 
personality and looks more than men, particularly in the workplace. And this mentor was literally confirming those biases to her mentee. There's been studies showing that women can even say things about other women who have children and telling them things like, maybe you should take some time away from your career because you're having kids, right? Which is right in alignment with unconscious bias, women with family, men in career. And so once folks do, again, that audit of even the feedback that they're giving others, then they realize, oh my goodness, I'm confirming stereotypes. They then start to shift. I've seen it happen in in real time, but they don't even realize it until you make these connections. And how do you know, some people might be thinking, oh, I have realized this, you know, I am starting to change. Are there certain signs where someone on their own can be like, oh, I am making these shifts. Mm -hmm. They stop focusing on their personality and their, uh, what they look like and start reading the stuff they sent them. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? Focusing on editing the, the, read my resume, right? How does it look, you know, and focusing on the things that matter and are not just in alignment with bias, really taking that time to build skills that I'm going to need for the workplace and not further confirm bias. Dr. Bentley, how does mentoring show up for you today? Do you have mentors? Do you mentor others? How does it show up for you? I have mentees. So I am going back even to like my Spellman sisters, we call each other Spellman sisters, and making sure I'm now in the midst of making a program so that clients that want to have mentors the one I told you about can then just connect to Spellman, right? Because that's my direct connection. But I'm also mentoring people on how to do data analysis and young college students on how to get this passion for the IAT that I had when I was in school and seeing how they can make a career out of it. I also teach at Georgia Highlands College. So I have college students every semester, except for this one, because I'm about to have a baby. Uh, so all the time. They're emailing you. They're emailing me all the time, but I make it a point in my courses that I teach to help them find whatever their passion is and connect it to research. So I know that's what helped for me when I was being mentored is to, if I'm going to be in psychology, I teach psychology courses. And one of the courses I teach is a research class. And I want to help them find whatever that passion is. I don't care what it is. If you're into video games, there's a research question. There's a paper for you to read that can bring it on home and get you into graduate school, very similar to how it did for me. So I try to do that for my students in in the college classroom. And sometimes I'm really busy, but I make sure I find that time, right? And you never know what that can do to in the future. You'll get that email like, thanks for having me read that paper or giving me that assignment. I'm now in graduate school. So it doesn't take that much time often for you to have that impact. I love that. I love that. And I do love how we met. I was so grateful for the opportunity to get to, I think you asked for some feedback or advice. And maybe we had a couple of conversations just around growing a business. And I really love what you're saying about your focus around research, because I do think to an element, you want to have a focus in your mentoring, right? I cannot I cannot mentor somebody on academic research. (laughs) That is not my area of expertise. If you want to grow a consulting business, I'm probably your gal. But otherwise, you know, I might not be that helpful or I might be able to to, um, focus you into something else. So I love that idea of just maybe thinking about what you really uniquely bring to a mentoring relationship where you can really shine and really help somebody um, and maybe where you can and where it's great to pass them on potentially to somebody else. Yeah. And where you need to do that audit of yourself to realize where can I do better as a mentor in terms of even just not mentoring folks that are just like me, you know? Totally. I feel like we could go on forever. Jimmy, do you have more questions? I have uh, 
one broad question and then right now quickly four rapid fire word associations. I call it a verbal Rorschach test, but uh, you know it, it's as fast as you can respond, preferably okay. just one word. If I say the word mentor, what do you say? Mentee. Okay. I love it. And when I say mentee, what do you say? Growing. Hmm. How about the word sponsor? Hmm. Help. Lastly, coach. Teacher. Teacher. I love it. Dr. Bentley, you've already educated me a whole lot and helped me look internally at myself. How, if you're looking at the state of mentoring or maybe just the actual word mentoring in 2050, so put ourselves in the future here, how is mentoring going to be different if people continue to acknowledge and work on their own implicit biases? How would mentoring be different in 2050? If they continue to work on their own biases, we're going to see more Dr. Andy Barron's and more Bentley Gibson's. Dr. Bentley Gibson. That's what we'll see. And we don't see that as much as we need to. Andy, Andrew Barron, he's a white male. I'm a young black girl. Um, and we know there is a gap in uh, getting PhDs by race. We know there's a gap in STEM. We know there's a gap in PR. We know there's a gap in race and ethnicities in, in a lot of fields that need to be reduce, but they're not being reduced because people are not getting that mentor that they need who may not be the same identity as them, right? Who quite frankly, may be a totally different age, race, gender, sexual orientation, personality type. So in 2050, if we start addressing our biases now and are mentoring people beyond our bias, and we will see more diversity in the medical field, in education, in public relations, in government. There'll be more than just one token person in these areas because there've been more mentors who have gone beyond their biases. I love it. That's a vision I want to work towards. Let's do it. Let's do it. You know, we got to help people first audit themselves and yes. their organizations. Well, and I think you've really mentored us on just all of these considerations and the work that we're doing with organizations bringing this is just part of like table stakes. This is just part of the conversation around a mentoring program is how does implicit bias show up? How can people have the opportunity to have a learning moment? I love how you called it that to really see where they are and how can they continue to do better? Whether that's auditing throughout the program or auditing at the end, it's just, it's like, it's table stakes. So you brought us so much. I'm so happy to get to spend this time with you. Um, I am very excited about the baby on its way. And um, we are very excited. My, my, my James, my Jimmy. It's all <laughs> always need, always need a Jimmy. Um, yes. But thank you so much, Dr. Bentley. Julie, what an awesome episode. I'm so bummed that Dr. Bentley had to leave, you know, like thinking about pregnancy and being ready to give birth soon. Important stuff as opposed to educating and chatting with us. It was, I think, probably our most important episode. Dare I say that? Yeah. I feel like what I got from this conversation with Dr. Bentley will stick with me for as long as I'm doing mentoring work. I know Dr. Bentley. I've worked with her before. Her words in a workshop that I worked with her on several years ago continued to echo through my head. And just having the opportunity to have her on the show and talk about how that implicit bias impacts everyday interactions, especially in mentoring. It's like, mm -hmm. it's the most important piece. Were there specific words you remember? I think that idea of 
I don't know. You know, like I don't have the same experience as you. I am not going to tell you what it's like to have done what I've done exactly how I've done it because you're not me. So I think that opportunity as a mentor, as a boss, as a friend to understand where we experience things differently because of our race, because of our socioeconomic class, because of what region we live in. Like, I think Mm -hmm. just really recognizing that there are differences and actually just saying it and being comfortable with saying it and recognizing the differences. I think it's what I really got out of uh, my times with Dr. Bentley in the past and certainly during our conversation today. But what about you? I'm very curious to hear. I think you said it. And it's our principle about, you know, how to connect better with others. It's talking about how you and somebody else can unify instead of thinking about the differences when you meet somebody else. So what do you share? And as as a mentor, meeting a mentee, or really, as you said, Julie, as a boss, as a friend, whatever it is, if you meet somebody else, how can you share and open up about internal biases that we know exist? You know, they're implicit means they're always around no matter what you try to do. And I I love what Dr. Bentley said. I mean, I wrote down the quote uh, as a way to share with somebody else to say, I'm human. I have biases. If I mess up, please let me know. And I want to do better. And I'm open to getting better. And just like, you know, any kind of muscle, if you keep repeating that, it's going to get stronger. And that statement's going to mean more and you're going to be able to connect better with others. And I think as somebody who really cares about mentoring and wanting to be a mentor, I think having being comfortable with the fact that you're not going to be able to identify Mm -hmm. with every mentee you have, but that you're still really important. Like the fact that she had kind of this white Canadian guy as her mentor and like learned so much from him. But yet there were definitely instances where having another black woman was going to be a really important Mm -hmm. way for her to be able to connect. So being comfortable with having a diversity of mentors and then as a mentor, being comfortable with mentoring somebody that's really different than you and being able to say like, I may say things that aren't quite right and I may, but I'm open to learning and I'm open to getting better. I think, Jimmy, this is like unlocking the key to to really everything. It's so important. It is absolutely critical. And people can get so much out of these relationships that are not within their in-group. You're going to learn so much more. And even in relationships with people within your in-group, you're still going to mess up. You're still going to piss people off accidentally or on purpose. So just using and exercising the muscle of, hey, I might mess up, but I'm thinking about these things and I'm open to getting better. And in a mentoring relationship, I'm here solely because I'm emotionally invested in your successes and failures. And if you do that for somebody else, that person will continue to show up for you too. It's the basics of mentoring. And if we keep that in mind and realize that we can tell someone that we're also open to getting better beyond our emotional investment, beyond how much we care for someone, really strong, powerful relationships can occur. 100%. And Dr. Bentley also gave us so many good resources, which we love too. It wasn't just all talk. There were some great resources that are definitely in the show notes. Dr. Bentley is not all talk. (laughs) Dr. Bentley is not all talk. She gave us Mm -mm. so many good resources for different um, links, different ways to look at your own implicit bias. I mean, honestly, we've hired Dr. Bentley to do work with us. She is an incredible resource for any organization. So if you are listening to this and you're Mm -hmm. excited about what she has to bring to the table, get in touch with us, get in touch with her and bring her in and have an opportunity. Yeah. To be able to, to support organizations as they continue to transform and become more inclusive. Augmenters out. Mic drop. Wow, you've made it this far, and we thank you. Hopefully, you enjoyed our episode and discovered new ways to bring more authentic connection into your mentoring relationships. Want to tell them more, Jimmy? 
be an augmenter with us. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about. Like and subscribe. And yes, really, you following our show and writing a review, it's a big deal. Your actions provide us with the resources to continue our undefeated, unencumbered, prize-winning productions. We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or on social with our handle at augmentershq. We are most active and available on LinkedIn and YouTube. Shout out an earnest thank you to our intrepid producer, Erlen Cato. We appreciate you. Augmenters out. See ya. Thank you.